pray with me together? Father, we come to you now by the work of your Son, and we pray, Spirit, that you would open up our eyes to the Scripture, and I pray this day that you would cause us to more fully embrace our identity, our identities as disciples of Jesus, and that you would use these words to change lives and to cause others to be brought into your kingdom. I pray for that, and I thank you that you hear me. Amen. Okay, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Moran. Last week, uh, if you were here last week, you know that this was what we call kind of our state of the church sermon. You know that Matt Cruz came at us hard and heavy talking about why the church exists and what we want to be known for. If you look out in the foyer, you'll see a sign that says, Seven Mile Road, Melrose. Underneath that, it says why we exist. And it says in bold, clear letters, to make disciples of Bostonians in and around Melrose. Underneath those words is this text. This is our mission. Everything we are and everything we do needs to drive toward this end. Every prayer, every sermon, every song, every Sunday, every gospel community, every conversation, every dollar, every decision, everything. What would it take for us to see a broad array of Bostonians who live in and around the city of Melrose gladly believing the gospel and living in holy community, on a shared mission for Jesus. Whatever the answer is, we're in. We're in. And then the rest of the sign indicates the things that we want to be known for, that we want to characterize this church. So we talked about gospel centrality, holiness and humility, orthodox theology, deep relationships, missional living, and generosity. Building off of this today, I just want to say, how do we make disciples? That's our question. How do we make disciples? What I want to do today, specifically, is to answer that question specifically in relationship to our gospel communities. How do we make disciples through our gospel communities? Okay, last week, Matt preached from the verse in 2 Timothy, uh, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I hope that desire to be useful, ready for every good work, is really strong in you as we go into this year together as a church. When we're done, if this sermon hits home, you will know what it means to be useful, ready for every good work, in the context of gospel community. You'll know how we make disciples in gospel community, and you'll know how to cultivate what we want to be known for in that context. Okay, so first a little definition, if you are unclear on my phrase, gospel community, these are the groups of seven milers, six, eight, ten, twelve, even twenty plus at times, who are living in proximity to, to each other and believing the gospel together in community around a shared mission. We have these communities in Malden, Melrose, Saugus, Beverly. Some of you, as you hear this sermon, will be thinking, I want to be part of this. If you do want to be part of gospel community, there are three ways you can do that, okay? Three ways you can do that. One, you can just catch up with me personally. We're not so big that you can't do that. Two, our welcome team has connect cards. You can talk to them. as it, They have cards that you can fill out and indicate that you want to be part of this. We'll follow up with you. Third, you can go on our website. Underneath the Melrose heading is a link for gospel communities. You will see, uh, you will see contact information there. Okay. 
the mission of the church, the reason that it exists, is to make disciples. The church has other responsibilities given to it by God through his word. The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the faithful care and discipline of her members. But the church has only one mission, make disciples. And we know this from the Gospels. In the last words of Matthew's Gospel, it says this. This will be a familiar text to most of you, okay? In the last words of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, well, first, a little background. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. These are Jesus' last words to them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go in the authority and power of Jesus. As you go, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the triune name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And as you go, go in the comfort and the power and the authority and the realization that Jesus is always with us. So making disciples is not just the mission of Seven Mile Road, Melrose, but every faithful church. But before we talk about how to do this, we have to answer this question. What is a disciple? What are we actually talking about? What are we talking about when we say disciple? That's not necessarily a commonly used word today. You might hear it inside a church building, but you're not necessarily going to hear it in a lot of other contexts. You might have a hard time defining it. What is a disciple? Let me give you an example. Uh, Fortune magazine just published a piece about a man named Tony Fidel. That probably is not a familiar name, but Tony Fidel is a billionaire. Why? Because he's a disciple. Not of Jesus, but of Steve Jobs. Tony worked with Steve Jobs at Apple when Apple was creating the iPod. Then he left Apple, and he used the concepts and the principles that Jobs was a master at, like uh, presentation and product development, and he translated them into a different arena, into home gadgets, okay? He applied those concepts when he built a company called Nest Labs. So investors, when they heard about Nest Labs, reported being absolutely wowed because when Tony Fidel pitched the Nest thermostats that you're now starting to see in everyone's house, his presentation style was so much like Steve Jobs. They said it was mesmerizing. He recently sold his company to Google for $3.2 billion based on learning those concepts about product development and presentation. He became a billionaire as a disciple of Steve Jobs. The other place you would likely hear the word disciple is probably in the sports world. For example, if a football team hires one of the assistant coaches of the Patriots, you'll hear commentators say something like, that guy is a disciple of Bill Belichick. That means this coach has learned about the game from his time spent 
from walking alongside Bill Belichick. And now he's going to take those concepts and those principles, and he's going to apply them independently for his own team. His great desire is to be like his teacher and to attain the success of his teacher. Okay, so you're probably starting to make connections in your head of how being a disciple of a great football coach or a great business guru might be like being a disciple of Jesus. But let me stop you there. Because while that is helpful, the parallels are not exact. And here's why. Jesus chose you. Before the day that you first believed, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he chose you. God the Father sent his perfect only son to live the sinless life that we're completely incapable of living. He gave the Spirit to open up your eyes to the truth of the good news, that the atoning death of Jesus is enough to pay for your sins and open the door to right and free relationship with the Father. In his perfect freedom, God the Father sent our older brother Jesus to earth to bring us back to the family of God. If you want to get the opportunity to be, the disciple, to be discipled by a great football coach or a great business guru or the leader of some other field, you earn that, right? You earn it. You put everything you have into being discipled by that person. And a lot of people don't even get that opportunity. You do everything that you can do to become a real disciple. You do it to become it, right? You get that order? You do it. You put immense amounts of energy into just getting to that place. But as a follower of Jesus, disciple is who you are. It's our identity. It isn't earned. It's our identity. Jesus said in John 15, 16, we read from John 15 earlier. In John 15, 16, he said, you did not choose me. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in my name should be given to you. Disciple is our identity. We didn't choose Jesus. We didn't earn our way to God. We didn't merit our choosing because of some inherent goodness that we possessed. No. We were chosen by an infinitely happy, completely self-sufficient God who in his gladness brought us into the family of God. Disciple is the identity of everyone who follows Jesus. Of everyone who follows Jesus. We're chosen and we're appointed to bear fruit that remains. It's our identity. Everything that we do flows out of that reality. Our actions flow out of the reality of our chosenness. Okay, so if disciple is our identity, what are the characteristics of a disciple? What do disciples of Jesus actually look like? Let's look at a second passage of John, the one that we just read on the screen, to see how Jesus describes a disciple. This is John 8, 31 and 32. 
Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. A good substitute for the word abide is remain. A disciple of Jesus remains in his teaching. He holds to Jesus' teaching. He or she has an ongoing, life-giving, continuing relationship with the Word of God. That means that the disciple who remains in Jesus' Word is continuing to believe what Jesus has said and walking in obedience to Him. They're continuing to believe what Jesus has said and walking in His ways. To hear Jesus' words and to respond to them in obedience is a characteristic of a disciple. It's a hearing and it's a doing, both and. The disciple lives by the word of God and is committed to obedience. The disciple is not simply moved or provoked by the word to consider it to be food for thought. Discipleship is rather something that is continuous and ongoing. It's a rule or a way of life. The word of God becomes the rule for faith and for practice. Here's an illustration that might help with that. Some of you know that I spent three years um, coaching college baseball. I coached younger kids for a long time, up to high school. I was given an opportunity to be an assistant coaching college baseball. So during that time, I worked underneath a head coach. My head coach was a tough, intense, older guy from New Hampshire. Whatever you think, of, whatever your image is of tough, true blue New England guys from New Hampshire, this was him, okay? And most of his philosophies about baseball came from the era that he played in, the 60s and the 70s. And I learned a ton about baseball from him. In fact, I became immersed in his philosophy of how to play the game through all that time that we spent together. And then a time came that I began to believe that I knew more than he did. We didn't think about the game the same way. We didn't think, specifically, we did not think about offense, how to score runs the same way. And I really began to believe a lot of his ideas were outdated. That's fine. The problem was my title was still assistant, right? My job was still to be useful. So this came to a head. We were in Florida playing a game, and I was watching him coach from third base. I knew that there was a play that we had to call. And I was watching him go through the signals. So he's over there doing this. And he wouldn't call it. And I was coaching at first base, just watching those signals. Like this. He wasn't doing it. And I had to do something. So I whispered into the ear of the runner at first base. And I called the play myself. We won the game. But I almost lost my job. If I had been fired, it would have been justifiable. Because while I understood what he was trying to do, I had my own agenda. At that moment, 
I did not see his philosophy as the ultimate authority. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not a disciple. The disciple lives by and obeys and remains in the word of God. And I want us to notice something here. The disciple may or may not know a lot of information about God. Jesus is not necessarily making a comment here about knowledge level. The disciple doesn't become a disciple by taking a series of classes. He hears Jesus' words, and he walks in obedience continually in them. He is absolutely, and really I would use the word unsentimentally, devoted to obedience to the word of God. And it is in that process that we come to know the truth, we come to know what is true, and the truth sets us free. That is an amazing concept. I wish I could preach a whole sermon about that, this idea that obedience leads to freedom. But what I want you to focus on is this reality that a disciple of Jesus lives by the word of God. Around here, we sometimes call this simply believing the gospel, moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life. Unbelief to belief in every area of life as we see how the gospel applies to each area. Okay, and a second characteristic of a disciple. A disciple of Jesus lives and loves in the context of community. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus is continuing to expound on what it means to be a disciple. And he said to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is the mark, okay? It's the mark of a true disciple. We are recipients of a freely given, totally undeserved grace. And the nature of that love is that it overflows to love for others. Jesus calls this a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you. Why is it a new commandment? Think about this. Why is this a new commandment since the time of Moses, people had heard that they were to love their neighbors as themselves? Because Jesus is looking forward to the ultimate self-giving act of love, his death on the cross. When he says, just as I have loved you, he's also pointing forward to the reality of his death. And he says, by that love, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What Jesus is saying is that the love of disciples of Jesus for one another is actually a statement to the world that we are his disciples. The community formed by the cross of Jesus, actually becomes an explanation for the reality and truthfulness of the gospel. The community that's formed by the cross actually becomes an explanation for the reality and the truthfulness of the gospel. So, to be clear, Jesus is not saying, you will be the nicest people ever, and that will be a witness to all people that you are my disciples. He's calling them to a radical, self-giving, cross-formed love 
for one another, the love that he's modeling. So how would that work? What would that even look like? Last week, a friend of mine was in town. He and I were born three days apart in November of 1980. We have honestly been friends ever since then. He came over to our house for lunch last Sunday, and we grilled steak tips, and after lunch, he and Laurel and I sat out on our porch and had a drink and talked. And I was asking him about where he's headed professionally. He'd recently earned his PhD in a computer-related field, and now he's busy researching and consulting and teaching. And he was explaining like, the amount of stress that he's under right now in this field. And then he asked me where, uh, where I was headed professionally. So I explained to him, well, we're in the second year of the 10-year plan in this church. Over that time, we are going to be involved in planting multiple churches north of Boston, God willing. And I'm going to primarily be involved in the discipleship and community culture of those churches. And then I went on to explain that although we have an ambitious plan to grow, we're probably not going to grow attractionally or by leaps and bounds all at once. In other words, he's not from Boston. In other words, um, I explained this isn't the type of culture where on Easter Sunday you can do like Jesus Christ Superstar on Friday and then on Sunday like 50 more people will be there. Instead, I explained the church is going to move forward relationally, one person at a time, through the lives of each individual member and each gospel community, connecting with people like these. And remember, we're sitting on my porch, so when I said these, I gestured around to my immediate neighbors, some of which were just outside at that moment. So I, and my friend, my friend is completely and totally secular. And he looked at me kind of skeptically, and he said, what's the sales pitch going to be? So I got to explain to him, there is no sales pitch. There's no marketing. The only question is the question for us, who actually believe right now. Is the gospel true? Because if the gospel is true, we are people who have received completely undeserved grace. And because of that, our mission, making disciples, is not a have to. We don't have to. We get to. It flows from who we are. Mission is always, and I'm not the first person to say this, mission is always an explosion of joy. We get to love people. We get to serve people. We get to pray for people. And we get to proclaim Jesus to people. We do not have to. We get to. To the extent that we see the mission of making disciples as a requirement, as the next thing on the list, it will always feel like an additional responsibility. But let me go back to John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in my name should be given to you. Our chosenness is utterly undeserving. And when we understand that, the natural response is joy. Okay? It's joy. God the Father, Son, Father, Son, and Spirit, has opened up to us 
the dynamics of his perfectly happy Trinitarian life and said, I chose you. We are chosen on, and sent on mission in the gladness of our chosenness. We are appointed by the sovereign God to bear fruit that remains, a legacy of fruitfulness. Okay, we've said that disciples live by the word of God and disciples live in the context of community formed by the cross. And we've said that disciples are chosen and in the gladness of their chosenness, they are called to go and bear fruit. That is what a disciple looks like. The disciple is someone who is following Jesus and becoming more like him, living by the word of God, sharing life together, and joyfully living on mission. That's a disciple. And with that in place, I want to answer this question quickly. How do we make disciples? How does disciple-making intersect with what we're doing in gospel community? So we're doing three things in gospel community. If you lead one, then you know these are always the three things that I'm talking about. Together, we're believing the gospel. We are around the word of God, learning to apply the scripture in every area of life. Like in Matthew 28 that we read earlier, it says, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. We don't want to just get together and chat about the Bible. We want to be people who live by the word of God. Secondly, we're doing it together in community. That means deep relationships. That means prayer, confession of sin, care for one another. Those are the characteristics of our times together. But love for one another also expresses itself in more organic forms of encouragement, service, prayer, stuff that probably goes beyond a scheduled meeting. These are communities that are not formed simply by common interest or convenience or even how comfortable we are with each other. They are formed around Jesus, the one who brought us together, who showed us how to love. And third, we are doing this on shared mission. That means that each one of our gospel communities has or is moving towards having a specific people that we are loving and serving, praying for, proclaiming Jesus to together. So to put it most simply, we are making disciples by sharing life and sharing the gospel. And to that end, the idea of shared mission is creating space in the life of our communities for that to happen. Some of our gospel communities are at the point where they're seeing okay, this is who we think our people is. This is our na- it's this neighborhood or it's, it's this specific people group. And there aren't necessarily a lot of relationships that have been built yet, but these are the people that we're beginning to love and pray for and reach out to. And then some of our other gospel communities have gotten a little bit past that point. They've gotten past defining who it is that God has sent them to, and they've actually had some months to pray for and serve and love people and build relationships And they're actually starting to see the fruit, the early fruit, of living this way as they start to see the gospel percolate in the hearts of people who do not yet know Jesus. We're sharing life. We're sharing the gospel, applying it to every area of our life. That's the process. And I hope you're seeing how it wouldn't be consistent with what we're saying about what discipleship is, that our communities would be closed off from people who don't yet know Christ. Last week, Seven Mile Road Malden baptized three people. And all three of the people 
who were baptized in this early church plant connected with the church through simple invitation, and for two of them it was just as easy, if not preferable, to connect to the gospel community as it was to come on a Sunday morning. And like Jesus said, last week the church was there at Upper Mystic baptizing these three people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But what was so exciting for me, beyond the amazing fact of new life, was the reality that these people had experienced, yes, the propositional truth of God's word and about who God is. They had experienced that gospel word, and they had also experienced a community of faith, of disciples. If we, as followers of Jesus, remain in his word and love one another the way that Jesus loved us, and live joyfully together on mission, I believe we are going to get to be able to be part of hearing those stories of new life again and again and again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and for the mystery that you have called and chosen those of us who believe. Pray that even now your spirit would be working on the hearts of those of us here who are maybe not quite there, quite yet to the point of belief. Pray that you would be forming us into people that live out every aspect of our identity as your disciples. We need your spirit to help us, and we ask for it now. We're grateful for all it is that you have done in us and are doing. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.